Welcome to Ears on Art's 18th anniversary show. Stay tuned. As I just mentioned, you are tuned in to Ears on Art, a segment of issues and ideas produced in the studios of listener-supported KCBX Public Radio, serving the California Central Coast. This is the 18th anniversary show for Ears on Art. First produced in April of 1999, we faced skepticism as to whether a show that focused on the visual arts was even possible on the radio. Fortunately, we had the invaluable guidance of then-program director Guy Rathbun. Through the years, with the dedication of the staff of KCBX, we have had the pleasure of interviewing hundreds of artists, curators, and museum directors, many of which are renowned personalities in their chosen disciplines. That was Stephen DeLuke, and this is co-host Krissa Hewitt. Today, we trip down memory lane with snippets from past shows. First up is the interview we never dreamed we would have the opportunity to experience. No intro needed, at least not from two of her big fans. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. How are you, Krista? I'm fine, thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Good morning, Krista. Good morning, Julia. We are here because we're thinking that cooking is very much not just an art form, but very much a visual art form. Thank you, Julia, for agreeing to converse with us about this subject. I was thinking we start kind of at the beginning of the sense of the meal, the sense of thinking about it. When you go to the store, when you go to the farmer's market, where a lot of people say that they see oh, you these well. days, as you go from vendor to vendor, what sort of things are you looking for? Something delicious, like the last time we was at our farmer's market here, they had the most beautiful, fat, green, fresh asparagus. It was just... <laughs> Lovely. You just couldn't resist but buying it. And when you're getting to the menu itself, what sorts of things do tend to come into play as far as thinking about how a meal will look as opposed to just how it will taste? Well, it has to look nice. I think that's one thing that the, what was that, sort of minimal cuisine that we had for a while mm -hmm. that did teach us that the arrangement of the plate was very, very necessary. You have to have color and texture and so it has to look interesting and appetizing and it must look like food <laughs> i think sometimes things are arranged so it looks like kind of a flower arrangement or something like that it doesn't look edible i've always had problem with certain restaurants who do i call it fusion food and they build these sculptures you know and i find how does one eat that well the other night i was at a restaurant and i ordered the swordfish and then came sort of as a pile of stuff, and I really didn't know what I was eating, whether the fish was on top or in the middle or where. Are there foods that you would purposely not put together because of either how they might appear together or their textures are too similar or too different or the colors too much the same? I always remember when I was growing up, my mother arranged dinner, and... When it was all brought and we served, she began to cry because it was all white. She had forgotten to put anything <laughs> other colors in. She just hadn't thought about the presentation. So you really have to think about that, I think. So did you say that we could take a look at the kitchen? You can indeed. Okay. This is pretty typical. It's very small. 
was rather like the kitchen on a boat, isn't it? Uh -huh. <laughs> Almost like a galley, yeah. <laughs> it is. But everything is, counters are nice and high. Uh -huh. You can work on all of them. And there's all of the equipment. <laughs> everything, everything hanging up. That's right. Everything hanging up, very neat, very orderly, and uh, very accessible. And as you say, this is not a large room. What is it? Eight, six by eight? Yeah, probably eight by eight, somewhere in there. I think about, yes. Yeah. But it's big enough I can get three people in here perfectly. Uh -huh. Well, here we are. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> After what's done last year, Wolfgang Puck was in here and we did a show with him. So you had a camera in here too? Yep. It still brings pleasure. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to like your own food or it's pretty a pretty sad life. Isn't that is it? true. I think you have to be fairly forgiving, but you hope you know what you're doing. <laughs> you should never, ever apologize, because if you do, then someone will say, well, this isn't very good, is it? But <laughs> brought attention to it. Because you assume it's wonderful. Or you just don't make any remarks. That's right. <laughs> Change the subject. Yes, everyone can suffer in silence. Go on to, go on to the next course. <laughs> Along the way, some of those times when you would have liked to have apologized, but knew better? No, I wouldn't, and you just don't do it. <laughs> and nobody wants to hear it. And also, they don't know what you intended, and you would not be pleased with how it turned out for you, but mm -hmm. maybe it's probably perfectly all right. Mm -hmm. Well, we went over on the QE2 last year, I went with some friends, and and there were 1,600 passengers, and I think almost as many crew. <laughs> it was interesting to go into those kitchens and see a great big oven cooking 400 ducks at once. In the middle of the ocean. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> With the boat going up and down sometimes. Very, very smooth crossing. Yes. You could have been on shore all the time. Oh. But it was fascinating to see how they did it. So you took a tour of the kitchens? Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> do you ever not take a tour of the kitchens when you go somewhere? No, I usually do. <laughs> Chefs love to be recognized and mm -hmm. talked to, don't you? Oh, absolutely. Especially by your peers. Or just by a group of people that come to your house for dinner. But don't tell them it wasn't any good. This fallen cake was on purpose. It's called a fallen cake. It's called a fallen <laughs> cake now. It's my new specialty. This has been very nice of you to give us this time to be talking with you and more importantly to meet you. You have certainly been a very inspirational figure in my life and I know in many people's and it certainly isn't the first time you've heard that. Thank you very much. Well, you're a very good interviewer, Chris. I've enjoyed talking with you. Well, thank you. Did I get to put that one up with being almost a cook? Yes. <laughs> of course you do. Oh, okay. <laughs> Stephen, thank you for all of your tidbits and Thank you, Chris. And again, thank you, Julie. It's been a delightful afternoon. Well, it's been fun. I hope we'll see each other again. I hope so, too. Next up, Rachel Rosenthal, an internationally acclaimed performance and visual artist who was the presenter one year at a Ruth Fash Memorial Lecture Series at Cuesta College. Local artist Ruth Fash loved the work of Rachel Rosenthal, but never had a chance to meet her. We all have moments of epiphany, but how many of us pursue the avenues of transformation to ensure metamorphosis? Throughout my life, I've worked incessantly for metamorphosis and for transformation and for change and for becoming truly 
the person that I could feel a little bit more proud of and not ashamed of. Your reputation for many of us is that of a performance artist. Sure. Help us with the distinction between that and a small one-act play or a monologue? Well, there's several things. Um, there's such a thing as the so-called classical performance art, mm -hmm. which happened in the 60s and 70s, that changed radically in the 80s and 90s. I mean, there's a lot of people who say, how do you know when a piece is art? Well, the piece is art when the artist says it's art, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and it's a little bit like that with performance. It's performance if the artist says it's performance. In the old days, when performance began to emerge from happenings and from body art and from action art and all those things, it was still something that mainly was done by visual artists. And so there was a sort of a bias against any kind of theatricality. Most theatricality ha deals with illusion. In uh, theater, you pretend and you create illusionistic situations and visuals and mm -hmm. so on. Whereas with performance, most performances, artists would create things which were real in the sense that they, they use real time, real space, real whatever, like blood, urine, anything of that nature. It was never pretend, it was always real. When I talk about real time, there were many performances that lasted a whole year, you know, or many performances that lasted a few seconds. So it was built on the concept that whatever the artist was experiencing or going through or whatever activity or event they had prepared, they would live in real time and, of course, in real space. So there was no acting in the sense that actors do. Pieces were done once, they were not repeated. They were totally the work of one artist, usually, mm -hmm. unless it was a collaboration, but there weren't too many of those. But mainly, the artist would have the idea, the concept, would carry it through, would, would do whatever visual objects were needed for that piece would do whatever sound was needed for the piece. So it was really a cottage industry, usually, of one person. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work uh, had to do with breaking taboos. A lot of work had to do, well, when the women came into it, especially with uh, politics, with feminism, there was always something that was breaking boundaries. You were saying this afternoon that what was it, 2000, 2001, that you did your last? 2000. And that you have returned, in essence, in many ways, to painting. Uh, I say return because you're saying at age three that you were getting involved with art so and drawing on the marble. I always continued doing uh, visual art at some point or another. It's just in the last 25 years that I was so involved with performance. The thing with me and visual arts is that I did a lot of it and it was always pretty good, but the one thing that I loved the most was painting and I was always a lousy painter. <laughs> and so I wanted to, you know, 
put my effort into becoming a good painter before I died. <laughs> and I have a feeling it's probably more your definition that you aren't very good at painting than other people's responses or? Yeah, I've been getting really good responses, but I know, I know, you know. Yes, we always do. Yes. <laughs> well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Your visit here has just been a real joy to all of us and certainly, a, as I said earlier, a great way to honor a very wonderful person whom you would have adored. Yeah. Well, so sorry that I didn't know this person and the way people talk about her makes me very happy and honored that I was part of it in some way. So yeah. thank you. You're most welcome. You're listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio for the California Central Coast. Today, Stephen and I are celebrating the 18th anniversary of this program. We are doing that with excerpts from some past shows. We continue that journey now with ceramic artist and painter Bill Shin and his wife Jean. Bill was the head of the ceramic department at Allen Hancock College in San Maria and since his retirement has had the great pleasure of exploring the world of extruded clay forms. Here now is Bill Shin. Good afternoon and welcome, Bill. Good afternoon, yes. And Stephen. Hello, everyone. Bill, do you remember when art first became a part of your life? Yeah, it goes way back. I remember in grammar school a teacher introducing me to the class as a new student and a few days later showing the class drawings that I had done, and uh, which I enjoyed doing it. I drew everywhere, inside of textbooks and other places. <laughs> Nothing better than a little praise. <laughs> yeah, it does wonders. <laughs> and do you remember the first time you used clay? Much later, even in uh, high school, I was a painter in junior college, a painter. And at UCLA, I got my degree in painting. Then I took a class in clay, and my painting friend said, you know, that's when I went bad. <laughs> and uh, I did... After that, teach high school. I had a family by then, and I remember mentioning to someone how much I enjoyed clay, and one of the other teachers said, go back and get your master's in clay. And I said, I couldn't do that, I got a family. And he said, great words, maybe you owe it to your family. And bingo, back to UCLA, back to my teacher, Laura Andresen, who was absolutely wonderful. I'm really curious about the term going bad. What do you think your friends were saying to you? The old uh, association of crafts, you know, something lesser, and then there's fine art, the painters. Do you find that the years of painting when you moved into clay, what were things that you either took with you or that you found you kind of needed to abandon, if that's a word to use? When I retired from Hancock, I went back to painting. And uh, it was exciting. I found an old drawing I did it as a student. It was an experiment with different media, with tracing paper and with colored, uh, different colored clays, uh, making a, a collage drawing. Technically, I was doing something different. I remember a teacher once telling me, if you want to get into a show, do something that they can't figure out what you did. There are three different styles of painting, and they're all, all experimental. They aren't just 
diving into a watercolor with your, you know, regular set of colors and paint brushes, and but combining different media. I did get into the National Watercolor Society, and uh, that came in handy when I started teaching at Hancock because I then took over the uh, the gallery from George Murrow and had that for about 10 years. And because of my membership, I requested and was surprised to get affirmative answer from the Watercolor Society that Hancock College would be on their traveling show every year for the next few years. The best painters in the country were there, so I, I felt good about that. I think one, one thing in ceramics, there are so many different things you can do, so many directions, so many techniques. So I've kind of taken advantage of that, and I'm doing a lot of writing now for uh, Pottery Making Illustrated and Clay Times and Ceramics Monthly. That's a whole new creative field for me and a bigger challenge to uh, explain processes. And But, you know, getting back to the plasticity of clay, that's what's really exciting about extruding. And in a matter of 10 or 15 minutes with a particular dye, you can cover a table with extruded forms all from that. Is it time to go out to the studio? I think See we if should. we can yeah, haul Gene out with us. Anyway, these are the dyes. Ah, okay, and, and uh, before we get to those, formally, welcome Jean. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Jean, you also work with clay? Yes, I do. I'm a porcelain person. Aha. And I, I do small. So he makes big things and fits them in the kill, and then I put the small, my small things in between. So we, we really work out well mm -hmm. together. And your oh. first class at Hancock? What? 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 Ceramics. <laughs> oh, yes. He was my teacher, 1961, and uh, I laughed his jokes, and he noticed Finally, that. Finally, someone did. And I got all A's, of course. Teacher's pet? <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> she comes to my workshops, and she's a huge help there. I couldn't do all this without her. Okay, so we are out in the studio. Let's get a real definition of extruding. The extruder is, is a uh, tubular uh, machine that uh, you drive the clay down, and the, it goes through a die, which is a cut shape, and uh, the clay comes out that particular shape. I'm able to make uh, large dies that are hollow on the inside, and they can become either sculptural forms or functional. If people aren't still quite envisioning this, we can talk about a much larger than what they would hold in their hand, cake decorating, <laughs> pastry uh, Cookies. bag. Extruder, yes. yes. <laughs> Play-Doh yeah. has a little yeah. extruder, mm -hmm. and they, they push it through mm -hmm. and make little things mm -hmm. out of it. Mm -hmm. These are big things. But you're talking about the fact that you have developed ways instead of the solid material coming out the way toothpaste does that you can make a form that's hollow mm -hmm. yes talk about that a little well they're, they're actually uh, even the smaller extruders come with uh, circular dies the center part is held in place by a u-bolt or something as part of the extruder and then the uh, it squeezes out a perfect tube and being a perfect tube, unfortunately, that's all you get. That's if you want to get away from circles and squares, you get a piece of wood or a piece of metal or a piece of plastic and cut your own shape out of it. So we have here a piece of three-eighths ply, and, quarter inch? Yeah, and, and the clay moves over the braces and recombines to form a solid mm -hmm. slab of clay. 
And this is kind of a freeform shape that you have here, but a textural element on one edge. Yes. And when you yeah. talked about the clay coming back around, just to explain that a little bit, because it's a hollow form, mm -hmm. you have a center element that is totally freestanding from the other, so you had to attach it. So you've got like little U-bolts or yeah. something mm -hmm. that are holding it together. And so the clay goes around those and then comes back. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Okay. I keep moving on. I went through a period of making musical instruments and abstract sculpture, and, and I thought, well, I'll get through extruding. I can't. I, I, something else keeps coming up. Well, that certainly has an, an incredibly interesting shape to the things that you do. When you look at your pieces, they're very, very distinctive, and I think that's a really exciting part. You get tired of making the same old, same old. <laughs> did you have to experiment with the materials that you made the dyes out of, or did you just oh, fall yes. into that? Oh, yes. I blew a lot. I used a cheap plywood, mm -hmm. and they broke, cracked, and split, and made horrible sounds. Mm -hmm. Always, when one was destroyed, though, uh, it always squeezed something out really unique and different. <laughs> one of a kind. Yeah, uh. one of a kind, yeah. So you've extruded a form, and then you're also able to cut it and assemble it and do different mm -hmm. things with it, right? Yeah, exactly. But as you said, the time consumption is in the making of the dye. Exactly. And I see you still have a wheel sitting in the corner. I have two wheels. Two there. wheels, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I enjoy throwing, yeah. And are you combining the two? Uh, yes, I have. Thank you both so much. Well, thank you for coming. It's always enjoyable. It's a pleasure. You're certainly welcome. It was wonderful. Our last visit today is with Henry Wessels. I invited Henry to talk about his life in the classroom. He is Professor Emeritus from the Cal Poly Art and Design Department, where he was the ceramics department for close to 30 years. We focus on what it is to be a part of exposing people to this seductive and fascinating material, clay. A side note here before Henry and I begin. Our theme music for Ears on Art is the Lieutenant Kiji Suite by Prokofiev. It was Henry who introduced me to the movie The Horse's Mouth. Sir Alec Guinness played the irascible artist Gully Jimson. This was his theme song long before it was ours. Go rent the video. Join me now with Professor Wessels. Good morning, Henry. Good morning, Chrissa. It always seems to be a good place to start to find out how people got hooked on art. Possibly back to model airplanes, and I remember once getting a lot of quarter-inch balsa strips and building a viaduct for a model railroad train. Didn't have the train, but boy, that was a good viaduct. <laughs> I remember balsa wood a lot, too, as a kid. A career started? In Northern Illinois University. Uh, started as an art education major and enjoyed the general design and painting and ceramics courses there. was very fortunate. Uh, my teacher there had been a student of F. Carlton Ball, with whom I later studied at USC, with Susan Peterson also when I went back for my MFA several years later. And those are two very big <coughs> names in the ceramic world. Indeed. Fabulous teaching skills and willingness to share proper mixture of structure and, well, find that out for yourself, <laughs> which for me was the most effective way, I guess. And years later, uh, a department head at Cal Poly asked me, well, you know, how do you do that? After thinking for a couple of minutes, I figured I don't really want to try to find out. 
because I might lose it. I might change whatever good luck we've had. You were teaching high school? I did nine years at La Mirada High School down near Fullerton and did some community college work there at Cerritos. Fantastic response from the students as they discovered this stuff called clay. A textbook I used was by Glenn Nelson from University of Minnesota, and I still picture the very front page. The one photograph of one hand just clawing, digging, grasping in a a mountain of clay. And that, for some reason, communicates so much about what it is we do and feel and enjoy and know and yet have to discover. And your next question... I was asking when you started at Cal Poly just to establish that. I completed the MFA at USC in 1970, and that fall came to... San Luis Obispo, and have uh, worked full-time at Cal Poly for 25 years and retired as professor eight years ago, have been doing part-time until last March. So over 30 years at Cal Poly, mostly full-time. Now back to the squeezability of clay, the excitement. As you've been in the classroom, obviously hundreds of students have gone through the doors of the ceramic lab and come out the other side. Talk a little bit about what that's been like to see their lights go on in their eyes or the fun start or wanting to throw it across the room. What's it been? (laughs) One of the happiest moments is when uh, the student has that voila. Oh, I see it. I feel it. I've done it. I got it. To observe them having that delight is the, the unofficial payday for any teacher in any discipline. Other students send postcards, phone calls, now and then an email about their continuing study, production, joy as they find ongoing, and not necessarily full-time, but ongoing pleasure with what they have discovered with clay. Lots of times, administratively, we think in terms of business production, success in trying to earn a living, and that is an important factor within education. But that's more of a training situation, doing what industry or a market requires. One step up, at least one step up, is a personal quest, is a personal, deeper, more profound, again, joy is the word. When it works for you, or when you're in the process of getting close to something that may work for you, boy, that, that's, that's the big bucks. That, that's where the pleasure comes. I thank you for all the years that you have given to all of the students and to your colleagues and to this county in many, many ways. It's been a pleasure and wish you well as you continue because I know that if it is not in the classroom, it's in your heart and that's where it always matters. Thank you, Henry. Thank you, Krista. And now, like all the others on today's program, Henry too has left us. He died last Friday. I don't think I would have made it through the body politic of Cal Poly without him. And I know that I would not have experienced over these last 40 years anywhere near what I have as a resident of this Central Coast. Henry took it all in, and he shared it and shared it and shared it. His sense of humor was unique, and I am so glad that I understood most of it. And I think you could hear in his words 
the gentleness, the kindness, and the passion that he brought to his students. Henry has left his mark here on the Central Coast and beyond, exhibiting his work, singing with Pismo Light Opera Theater or San Luis Obispo Opera, and attending as many art events as he could. Henry was there, and Henry will be missed. You have been listening to Ears on Art here on KCBX Public Radio. Our revisits today were with Julia Child, Rachel Rosenthal, Bill and Jean Shin, and Henry Wessels. I am Chrissy Hewitt, and on behalf of my co-host, Stephen DeLuke, I want to thank you for all of your support over all these years. We'll be back next week with part two of our celebration. <laughs>